0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Sonos, maker of the Sonos Move, a portable smart speaker that delivers detailed sound and rich bass in every kind of room and outdoors. Recently, I gifted my co-producer, Robbie Carver, a Sonos Move as a way to say thank you for all his hard work on this show. So I thought I'd call in and see how he's been enjoying it. I'm just curious, like. Do you like it?
1: Yeah, man. I mean, it's it's become the go-to speaker for my family.
0: Rami has a precocious 4-year-old son who has taken quite a liking to the Sonos move and who has rather surprising taste in music.
1: He is super into 80s pop music. And so if there's music on, it has to be that.
0: As Rami's little music lover has discovered... Sono's TruePlay tuning software makes the move sound good no matter where you set it up or what you're listening to. It also works on Wi Fi or Bluetooth, is weatherproof and drop resistant. And when you lift it off its charging station, the battery lasts for up to 11
1: hours. Any moment we're home, that thing is on. Like if we're outside jumping on the trampoline, we bring it out with us. Uh, if it's bath time, we take it downstairs to the bathroom. Uh, if it's living room dance party time, we bring it up there. And so it kind of has just been his little his little boom box. It just travels with him wherever we go.
0: Okay, so if I get this right, I bought you a really nice present and uh, your son stole it. Yeah, pretty much. Sonos has speakers for all around your home and beyond, including the Move and the all-new Roam. This latest portable addition to the Sonos system is smart, lightweight, waterproof, and ready for any adventure. So start yours now at Sonos.com. Oh,
1: there's no way I can do that move.
2: Try to do it.
0: From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Two weeks ago, we launched a new series on this show called The Wild Files, which has people sharing stories about their most surprising and most difficult journeys and what they've learned from them. The big idea of the series that our hardest times forces to grow in ways we never expected, has been at the heart of numerous outside magazine features. And it's the same thinking that spurs so many people, and this might include you, to plan a challenging wilderness adventure, or maybe sign up for your first marathon, or your 15th marathon. Many of these experiences fit into a category that's often called type two fun, the kind that's miserable in the moment, that makes you smile when you think back on it and say, yeah, that was actually great. But there's a big difference between running a brutal race, so you can laugh about it later, and dealing with a traumatic incident that upends your life in the most painful ways. Just over four years ago, our former host, Peter Frickwright, told a two-part story on this show about Joe Stone. Joe had been a hard-partying young man, who then found his purpose in adventure sports like skydiving and base jumping. And then one day, he had an accident, and he became a C7 quadriplegic. For Joe, who until that point had lived a life of action and high-flying risk, there was suddenly a giant question to deal with. What am I supposed to do now? His answer was to do things that seemed impossible. This week, we're going to play the second part of Joe's story because we've been thinking a lot about it as we've worked on episodes for The Wild Files and also because it feels fitting for a moment when the whole world is wondering how we're supposed to move forward after a really hard time.
3: It was the weirdest kind of, like, adventurer goal, physical goal I've ever set because everything else I've done, it's like it's not about time and it's not about what somebody else says. It's about me going into the mountains and doing my thing.
4: It's just, can I I physically do one Ironman? We've never, you know, we've never even seen a C7 quadriplegic attempt this. When I started my training,
3: I'm eight months in, day one, right? The clock starts ticking then a lot of time you can get six months in you are i like, still got six months and you're three months and i still got three months and you're like a couple weeks and you're like whoa this is right around the corner and then you get to that like actual like things are set up and you go check out like the expo and that kind of stuff and they've literally got a big clock counting down the seconds and you can't stop it like you can't you can't slow it down it was just like this ticking time bomb and when it hits zero the guns going off and it's race
5: time.
6: It's kind of appropriate that the last actual physical steps that Joe Stone's legs ever took were at a full tilt run straight off the side of Mount Jumbo just outside Missoula, Montana. Up to that point, Joe had done almost everything in his life with the same total, full-speed commitment. Skating, partying, skydiving. Some people call themselves adrenaline junkies, but for Joe, the term is particularly appropriate. For him, adrenaline turned out to be even more addictive than the drugs. When he discovered speed flying, which is basically parachuting as close to the ground as possible, He binged on that rush, flying to the edge of his abilities almost every day. Joe crashed on his fourth flight of the evening, Friday, August 13th, 2010. We don't know why, but everyone's best guess, especially given Joe's track record, is that he got too ambitious too quickly and tried to do some sort of stunt that went wrong. He spent a month in a coma. Two weeks relearning how to breathe, another two weeks trying to figure out how to swallow water and food on his own, and then countless hours struggling with the thousands of other tiny tasks that make it possible to get dressed, shower, and feed yourself without full use of your arms and legs.
3: So the definition of quadriplegia is you have impairment in all four limbs. So I'm paralyzed from the chest down, I have full function in my arms, but my hands are affected.
6: Joe's right hand has about 80% function. It's just the finer movements that give him trouble. Joe's left hand is worse. He can extend the fingers, but he can't close them.
3: I mean, I can manually close it with my other hand. Like, my fingers will bend, but I can't just make a fist if I want to.
6: The other thing going on here is that from the chest down, his skin sort of tingles all the time.
3: So you know that feeling when you kind of get that, like, your, your legs falling asleep? Not quite to that tingly stage, but when there's kind of like a hum or a vibration under your skin, that's how my body feels all the time, from the nipples down.
6: If that sounds annoying, it is. But eventually, Joe got used to it, and he threw himself full-on into recovery. Seven months later, he got back to a sort of baseline level of independence. He could go through most daily activities on his own, even if it was pretty slow going. And for the record, seven months for this kind of injury... That was incredible. But even with that huge victory, Joe wasn't content just to feed and dress himself. He was a guy who needed to be constantly pushing his limits. But what do you do if you're an adrenaline junkie who can't get a rush? Well, since he'd lost function in two-thirds of his muscles in the accident, and he'd lost 30 pounds of muscle mass in the month he'd spent in a coma, the first limit to learn to push was his body. In the hospital, Joe started out barely able to chew three bites of food without having to take a nap. He'd been building endurance for a whole year just to get back to zero. Now that he was a little bit more independent, he quickly learned to pedal a hand cycle and then devoted himself to long-distance endurance racing. And because Joe was wired to go big or go home, he didn't work up slowly. Instead of entering a para-athlete bike ride or a middle-distance swim, He decided that his very first race would be one of the most grueling, difficult ways that there is to spend a single day. He'd do an Ironman triathlon. That's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then marathon length run. Or push, I guess, if you're in a wheelchair. At the time, no quad had ever completed one. At the time, no quad had ever attempted it. Joe's would be in Florida.
3: Once I realized that it was something that had absolutely never been done, I mean, it was pretty easy to say that's my next goal.
6: But this was for more than just bragging rights. Joe felt like if he could finish an Ironman, he could legitimately open some new doors for quadriplegic athletes to participate in endurance sports where they're currently not unwelcome, but just not yet competing. In other words, these were limits worth pushing.
3: I mean, it's just like it's like when Tony Hawk landed the first nine hundred on a skateboard. it was not that long after that that guys over in Europe were landing it and guys over in Australia were landing it. No, not a ton of guys. I mean, that's all, all it takes is one person to open up a door.
2: Yes! Oh
3: yes! And then all of a sudden, once, once it's known that it's possible, then more people jump on board.
6: Once he committed to it, the first thing to figure out was the sheer logistics of training. Sharing life with an Ironman for eight months is organizationally difficult for anyone for a new quad who hasn't quite mastered life in a wheelchair yet, it's way harder.
3: Like when I would drive to a trail and not leave from the house, I mean, it'd be a whole preparation on what I'm bringing for when my ride is done because I can't, by the time I actually get home, I've missed that window of when you really want to get that nutrition back into your body for muscle recovery.
6: If Joe was going to complete an Ironman, he'd have to outsmart and outplan his own body. If he bonked or ran out of water on a training ride... He couldn't just pop into a gas station to pick something up.
3: You know, the only way I'm going to get in there is if I get off this hand cycle and literally drag my body in
6: somewhere. So to help him with all this, he connected with Eric Belker, a former cop and triathlete who agreed to train with him and develop strategies to manage fluids and nutrition on days when getting stuck or bonking in the middle of nowhere would be really, really bad.
4: Here's Eric. We talked about that a lot, you know, don't get yourself to a point of no return, stay in front of the game and you got to do that mentally. Once you start that race, every 20 minutes, you got to be thinking, what, what is, what do I need?
6: But surprisingly, in some ways he needed less than an able-bodied athlete. Nutrition, for example, wasn't actually that big a problem. No matter how hard Joe was pushing himself in training, two thirds of his body was sedentary and didn't need any fuel. On days he would work out, he'd burn about a 1,000 calories, roughly the same as a restaurant cheeseburger, no fries. When he didn't, it was even less.
3: That that might be the one area where I had an advantage. But as far as, like, I'd go for a workout, and, you know, I would compare myself to Eric. Like, I think he ate about 400 calories an hour while working out. And I would take in about 100 to 150. And would totally be fine.
6: In fact, because of Joe's physiology, his actual experience in the Ironman was radically different than your typical athletes. So before we get to the actual race, we're going to go through each component of the triathlon and talk through how Joe's spinal cord injury complicates each one. We'll move backwards towards the start. So first up is the run, 26.2 miles following the swim and the bike. This would actually be the easiest event for Joe in some sense, because while it is a gut check, if Joe could make it to this section, he knew he'd make it across the finish line.
3: The marathon portion at the end, I wasn't even worried about that. that it was like once I get to that man, I could blow out a shoulder and I'll push myself with armed, you know, to get there. But that didn't scare me at all.
6: In this race, Joe's main challenge would be the clock. Triathletes have to finish an Ironman in less than 17 hours, but each section of the race has its own cutoff, where they kick you off the course if you're not keeping up. You have to start the marathon by 5.30 p.m., and the cutoff is midnight. So at worst, he'd have six and a half hours to complete the run. But Joe would be in a racing wheelchair, which on a flat course, is actually a little bit faster than your typical runner. So the racing wheelchair was no big deal. Next up, however, was the bike. And the bike scared him.
3: The main thing I was worried about was maintaining the average speed that I need on the hand cycle.
6: He'd have 8 hours and 10 minutes to go 112 miles on the bike. That's about 14 miles an hour, which, if you're not a cyclist, is kind of the speed an able-bodied person would ride to work when they're not rushing, but also don't care if they're a little bit sweaty when they get there. On the flats, Joe's plenty fast once he gets up to speed. He's even faster on the downhills, because his aerodynamics are so good. But on the uphills, his arms just don't have the same kind of power that legs do. And that's not the worst of it. Very early in Joe's hand cycling, he went out on a hot day and discovered the first of what would be a series of biological screwballs that his body was going to throw him.
3: And I'm biking up the steep hills, getting back to my house, and I'm starting to overheat. Like, I felt like I was cooking from the inside out. My skin, my body, my outer layer was the oven, and I was trapped inside of it, and it was a thousand degrees on the inside.
6: His friend PJ was riding with him and gave him his water bottle they made it back to the house but it was still scary it was a hot day but it wasn't that hot
3: and then i went to therapy the next morning and was talking to him about it and they're like yeah you you probably don't sweat like as a quad i'm like i don't sweat like what
6: sweating relies on a two-way conversation between your brain and skin as they talk about the body's internal temperature but because those messages travel up and down the spinal cord the brain can't tell the skin to start sweating so most quads don't sweat below their injury. This meant Joe would have to do it manually, carrying water and spraying himself down.
4: I think the biggest thing that we did along the way was just, you know, that that Joe would have a a ready bottle that he could kind of douse himself and get some water over his head.
6: It doesn't sound like a big deal, except that Joe would have to carry everything he needed, which added a lot of weight. And on a hot day, running out of water could be dangerous.
3: And that's when I learned, like, if I'm not careful, I'll have a heat stroke. Like, could die from that. And I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Because that was one of those things that's like, one, it's just so simple. Like, your body just does it. You don't have to think about cooling yourself down. Your body will just take care of it for itself. You know, so that was kind of heavy to take on. Like, wow, that's a huge, that's an actual barrier. If it's 95, 100 degrees out, I'm not going for a hand cycle ride. That's not going to happen.
6: But carrying water to cool off was a bigger problem on training rides than it would be in the actual competition. During the Ironman, there'd be plenty of aid stations with water bottles along the way. When it came time for the actual race, if something was going to be slowing him down, it was probably going to be his heart. And here's where things get really crazy when it comes to Joe's injury and his ambitions as an athlete. If he's falling behind the pace, he can't just sprint or go harder when he wants to. Since the accident, Joe's maximum heart rate the highest he's ever been able to reach is 131.
3: I mean, I should be in the 180s, 190s. Easy.
6: And it's like his body has a limiter on it. Joe's maximum sustainable effort is a heart rate right around 110, or roughly the equivalent of an able-bodied person climbing stairs for a while. Joe just cannot push any harder. It's something that affects almost everyone with a spinal cord injury above T6, which is sort of between the shoulder blades. And there are a couple of really interesting reasons why. First, cells within the actual heart muscle have an intrinsic maximum rate of 130 beats per minute. So the heart won't beat any faster unless the brain tells it to. But because of Joe's injury, the brain can't talk to the heart and tell it what the rest of the body is experiencing. It just never gets the message to pump faster. Second, when leg muscles fire, They help squeeze the blood against gravity back up towards the heart through a series of one-way valves in our veins. Without those muscles, the blood just takes longer to get back to the heart. But the third thing is the most interesting. Because our arteries have a system of smooth muscles surrounding them, which help regulate blood pressure. In a normal body, these muscles expand and contract the arteries as needed, kind of like squeezing a garden hose. So the narrower the artery, the higher the blood pressure. But in Joe's body, the muscles that squeeze to make the artery narrower, they can't talk to the brain either. He can't raise his blood pressure. And low blood pressure means less efficient oxygen delivery. But there's another twist. Because this system isn't broken, it's just that Joe's brain can't talk to it. Joe's brain doesn't know when he's sitting on something sharp or hot or has some sort of major damage he hasn't noticed. He can't feel it. But his body can, and it can trigger a stress response, which tells the smooth muscles to narrow their arteries. It's called autonomic dysreflexia, and it's actually really dangerous, because if you don't recognize the problem, and your blood pressure stays elevated too long, you could die. But when it happens, while you're working out, it actually feels great.
3: I would start sweating a little bit which when i'm really hot it feels like super good because that's like wow this is what it feels like for your forehead to sweat and start feeling cooler for my shoulders to sweat and feel the breeze over this that's what that's what it's all about you know that's what sweating does
6: the most common cause of autonomic dysreflexia is having to pee joe happens to ride with a catheter in when he's on the hand cycle so his urine just dribbles out on the road behind him as he goes but if the urine builds up a little bit, because of his body position, he finds he can pedal hardest just before his bladder releases.
3: And so if you did something to like completely, let's say you tied a rubber band around yourself where you, you cannot physically pee, that you've got your, your urethra is completely closed shut and you just and I just let my bladder fill up, it could lead to a stroke. So it could be a risky game.
6: Other than maybe waiting to pee at the top of a hill, Joe never messed around with this stuff. And since the Sydney Paralympic Games in 2000, officials have been randomly testing athletes with spinal cord injuries. In fact, they found that some competitors would break their big toe just prior to a race. It's pretty easy to catch violators, however. These days, wheelchair athletes can't start a race if their blood pressure is too high. So that's the bike. Just the equivalent of a full workday pushing at near maximum heart rate, and trying to remember to manually sweat as you watch the clock to see if you're gonna make the cutoff. It was gonna be close, but Joe thought he could make up some time on the swim.
3: I wanted to swim it as fast as I could so that I had more time on the bike. You know, every 10 minutes, that's quite a bit more time to, to crank on the hand cycle.
6: The swim was 2.4 miles, and he'd have two hours, 20 minutes to do it. And it's only a little bit misleading to say he wasn't worried. Joe's mom, Kim Stone, says he's always had a pretty deep fear of deep water.
5: That and spiders. (laughs) And so when he told me about the water part, um, I'm like, Joe, how are you going to do that? He's, you know, he's like, "I I don't know.
6: In addition to Joe's Midwestern anxiety, however, there were actual practical problems to overcome. First, Joe's legs would be dead weight hanging below him so he had to figure out how to swim. The answer to this one came in the form of a burrito, or rather a neoprene covering that would secure Joe's legs and give them some buoyancy. With a backboard wrapped in there, all his arms had to do was pull. But even that was kind of complicated. Well,
4: in the beginning, he was breaking, so his lead hand, his hand kind of would go in the water, and he'd basically just push the water, so he'd basically stop his forward momentum.
6: So it would kind of flare, like his wrist would bend. It would kind of flare and push against the wrist, right. the water he was trying to.
4: So what we did is we just nitpicked it. We just got a GoPro and we just like, shoot that arm farther down. You got to keep it straight. Don't let your wrist bend. You know, you got to check in here. What, what's going on? And so we did little, you know, little refining moments like that.
6: The bigger problem, though, was Joe's vision. Because of a lot of things, like the fusion of several vertebrae in his neck, the burrito wetsuit, and the strength and shape of his stroke, Joe couldn't get his head out of the water to see where he was going.
3: Like I can do it, but I have to push out so much energy just to get my head out of the water to see for that half-second look that you need to be doing frequently throughout a race. That it's almost like it's—is it worth that? You know, is it worth it? You know, that's just burning so much energy just to get so much more than anybody else would have to burn.
6: In order to manage a roughly straight line in open water. He needed eric to swim in front of him
3: so he wore uh like pink and kind of like zebra striped tape and so basically he was like you know my seeing eye dog
6: but outside the water eric played an even more important role he made sure that joe put in the time and did the work here's joe's partner amy rosendahl
2: you know if it was raining joe was like i don't really want to go for a bike ride but I know Eric's probably going for a bike ride right now, so I can't really talk to him later and tell him that I didn't want to go for a bike ride in the rain because he would've just called me a pansy. (laughs) So
6: So that was Joe's training, uh, six days a week, swim, bike, run, and then sleep.
2: His life was pretty much consisted of going out for workouts and then sleeping. (laughs) I would leave for work. I think I'd probably leave for work at like 4.15 4.15 or so, and he'd have been down for a nap, and I'll come home from work at 11, and he's in the same spot. Like, he went down for a nap and just never got up. <laughs> just with his, like, bike jersey on and grease all over his arm. And,
6: <laughs> and then, after eight yeah, months yeah, of this...
2: He was ready. He was ready for that race.
6: It was time. We'll be right back.
0: At the top of the episode, we talked about the Sonos Move, the premium portable smart speaker that delivers detailed sound and rich bass in every kind of room and outdoors. And while my co-producer Robbie Carver may have lost DJ privileges when his four-year-old son is around, he makes up for it during those precious hours when he's off of dad duty.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I live in this pretty remote area, right right next to a river, and um, sometimes after taking my son to school, I just come back and sit on my porch and just kind of soak it in. And the Sonos has really become part of that. Um, it's this robust speaker, you know, it doesn't mind a little rain, so I have no real worries about taking outdoors. And yeah, like the Bluetooth mode means I don't have to stay on Wi-Fi to use it. And You know, also with the warming weather, it's getting easier to have COVID-responsible get-togethers. You know, I invite a few people over around the fire pit. And, you know, the move has been awesome for that. It sounds great. You know, I just turn it on and I don't even think about it. It has a great battery life. So I literally just bring it out with the lawn chairs. And, you know, we have music going for as long as the evening lasts. And that's just awesome.
0: The Sonos Move. It's the perfect speaker for discerning listeners of all ages learn more about the move as well as the all-new road the latest portable addition to the sonos system at sonos.com and now back to peter frickwright and the story of joe stone
6: they got to florida a week early give themselves a chance to do some rides try out the wetsuit in the ocean and watch the numbers on the big countdown clock at the starting line get smaller and smaller and smaller by this point, Joe had done the training and knew he could do the mileage. But there was a lot that could still go wrong. He had a lot of specialized equipment. If it broke, there'd be no way to replace it in time.
3: Equipment failure of some sort, weather, whatever. It was just like, all it's going to take is like one thing to get in my way. We need like the perfect, epic day. Because no matter what, the easiest day for an Ironman is still a really hard day. But every plan, especially when you're dealing with something outside, with weather, You can only plan so much and the rest, you just got to like hope it's going to work out.
6: But it turns out it was the day before the race that looked like it might cause the problems.
3: It went from like two weeks of beautiful water, like almost no waves, beautiful to swim in. And the day before the race, a huge storm rolled in and it turned that water on big time. When that weather rolled in, I mean, it set the fear in. Like, is this it? Is this that one thing?
6: They watched the weather all week, but there was nothing to do but wait and hope that conditions improved before the morning of the race.
3: And then I got no sleep that night. Like, I don't think I slept an hour. Literally, I mean, I was just up, like, trying to sleep. I was resting and my eyes closed. I was so scared for the following day. I was so nervous about everything and just, you know, had I done enough and just second guessing and just a lot of anxiety. And then the, you know, the alarm clock went off. I think we woke up at like three 30 in the morning, three in the morning.
4: You got to get body marked. You have to go through, you have to double check your tire pressure. You have to, you know, wh- how's everything laid out when I get back here? What's it going to look like? Um, so there's just an incredible amount of things, and then you have a guy with a bullhorn that's you know, ushering people like cattle into chutes and telling people where to go, and you gotta get to a certain spot to get body marked, and you gotta get it to a certain spot to drop your bags off. And,
3: and then we made our way to where the water was. Nobody was saying that the water was good, but I, had, I didn't see it yet. And then we came out, the sun wasn't up yet, but you could see just enough. And, man, you could just hear the waves crashing. This isn't looking good. This water is crazy right now. I've never swam in anything like that. Like, that's intense. That's the water I would avoid because it looks too nasty to swim in.
5: We first saw Joe through the fence um, the morning of the event. So we knew that he was mentally not wanting to stand there and, you know, sit there and carry on a conversation with us. So it was just a bunch of well wishes through the, through the fence. And, um, and then we went down to the beach and, you know, and just waited for everything to start.
3: And I was, I mean, it was like, you gotta be kidding me. This is what, this is my race day two weeks of beautiful weather and this is, the, this is what I get on
0: race day? you got to be kidding me.
3: But, it was, I mean, it was nothing that was going to stop me, you know? The, the question of, like, I'm not going to go in there or, like, am I, should I race today or anything like that, never even. There was never a moment of, of doubt whether or not I'm even going to start the race, you know? Like, no matter what, I put in too much time and energy to this. Like, I'm, I'm going for
6: this. The swim portion consisted of two 1.2-mile laps, they had to go around one pylon in the ocean and one on the beach. And they'd worked out an arrangement with the race director that Joe would start the race out past the breakers, treading water and waiting for Eric, who'd carry his timing chip. In between each lap, Joe would wait and Eric would run onto shore and through the tracker and then come back out to Joe. It wasn't ideal, but Joe couldn't push his wheelchair in the sand.
3: So in this situation, it's like, I can go swim 2.4 miles for sure, but getting through the sand to the water. That's that's harder than the whole 2.4-mile swim for me.
6: The race would start in five-minute waves. The professional men would go first, then pro women, then the different age groups. Ten minutes before the race, Eric and some helpers carried Joe out to the water, and he swam out to the meeting point, 40 yards offshore. He'd stay there until Eric could start with the second wave. Until then, Joe would have to wait.
4: So he was in the water. I want to say an additional... Over 10 minutes.
6: Just treading water with his arms?
4: Yeah, well, kind of the neat thing about his wetsuit is that it's buoyant.
3: And then it was like, you know, I had 10 minutes, right? And I'm thinking about how far I've come. And I couldn't, I mean, like, literally, I had to wipe tears away. I got like, pull my goggles up and wipe some tears away because I was thinking about three years ago where I was at. Three years ago, I was in a hospital bed thinking the rest of my life was going to be in a nursing home. And right now I'm at the start of, a, of an Ironman. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to explain how that felt. That was, like, the most, uh, it was just really, really emotional. So then, like, the, the men's, you know, cannon goes off and they go charging. And they're pros. So they make everything look easy. And they go by and I'm like, wow, like, that was really cool to witness, like, from right here to see that from this perspective. And then I was like, whoa, wait, five minutes. Oh, oh my God, five minutes just starts. So... That five minutes went by like blink of an eye. And the women's cannon goes off in Eric's within that group. And so he comes out and the women swim by and Eric's back behind. And I see him up getting closer and closer to me. And I thought it was gonna be this moment where he was just gonna get to me and be like, Let's go. And we we're just gonna charge it, right? And he swims out and he gets to me. And we we took like fifteen seconds, he stops. And he's like, are you ready? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, and he looks back at like what I was describing earlier with everybody getting ready to start the race. And he just goes, take it in for a second. And it almost like a cheesy movie, but it was so real that there was no cheesiness to it. He goes, this is what it's all about, Joe. Right here, this moment, all the hard work. This is what it's all about. Are you ready? All right, let's do this. We started swimming, though, and I realized I couldn't see Eric under the water. Visibility was gone. Our whole strategy was based on visibility, and I couldn't see him under the water.
4: The visibility was maybe six inches, so we just had to, and we, hadn't, we didn't even have time to talk about it. I mean, it was just, the, the swells were just you know unlike anything he'd ever swam in before so it was you know there was talk that the 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 swim might not go on or whatever because of the storm um well it went on and, and we were in it
3: so that first lap was just like survival I wasn't even swimming. I mean, you're swimming, just but to survive. I mean, getting kicked in the face, you know, bumping into people. I had people trying to like swim over top of my legs and they were like pushing my whole body under. So we finished our first lap. And our, we're a little bit slower than we wanted to be, but our time's still looking good, right? We're, we're We knew we were gonna be behind given the conditions, but given the conditions, things are still looking really good.
6: Then, as they neared the second half of the swim, Joe's injury caused one last complication he couldn't stay warm. That's because in order to turn the food we eat into energy and actual movement, muscle cells take in oxygen and glucose and spit out ATP, CO2, and water. ATP is the basic energy molecule used by all of our cells. If each muscle is like a car, food is like crude oil, and ATP is like refined gasoline. And just like gasoline, The reaction that burns ATP to create energy also gives off heat, so exercising makes us warmer. But there in the water, because Joe's brain isn't talking to any muscles below the middle of his chest, those unused muscles aren't making any heat. They're like unsold cars sitting in a parking lot. Full ticket gas, no driver, engine cold. And with water flushing through his wetsuit, the heat he did build up just washed away.
3: Eric goes out. I'm I'm literally treading water right next to this kayak. Eric goes out, runs through the chip reader, and comes back out to me. And I'm really cold at this point, right? I'm starting to be really cold. And at this point, I've probably been in the water for well over an hour. And he, he gets to me, Joe, how you feeling? I'm like, I'm super cold right now. Like, I'm crazy cold. And he's like, well, do you want to stop? Do we need to get out? And I was like, no, 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 no. We're going to keep swimming. But like just giving you a heads up, I'm super cold right now.
5: He was doing pretty good to the first buoy, and then after that, I just kind of, you could just see something was changing, something was different.
3: I mean, I was shaking through every stroke. i In my head, I'm so clearly trying to tell my body what to do, but I, I could not get my body to actually do it.
4: You know, as, as he started getting more and more fatigued, and the uh, he started getting hypothermic. I could, you know, I could see his lips were um, changing colors.
3: And so we're swimming, and we're, I'm giving it everything I've got. And all of a sudden, I go up to breathe, and I can hear out of my left ear, and I hear one of the kayaks yell to Eric, "You got three minutes." okay, we got to get out of this water. We got to make this happen. But I could hear the break. So I'm like, we're super close. We still got this.
4: Joe was just giving all, you know, all he had. The crowd was just going crazy, cheering us in. I'm just waiting
3: to get caught in those waves, and I was just going to try to, like, body surf them in, right? I'm just waiting to get in that break and get, get to the shoreline.
4: And then all of a sudden, it was just time.
3: Eric taps me on the shoulder, and I, like, sit up. And he just, he's like, it's over. And I'm like, what? Like, it's over. We missed the cutoff. We ended up missing it by two minutes. So it took two hours and 22 minutes, and the cutoff was two hours and 20 minutes. We're, like, right there. Like, I mean, I I didn't have to get on a boat. I mean, I I swam the 2.4 miles. Yeah, I just started, I remember leaning my head into Amy's head and just, like, started crying and not, like, bawling, like, making a bunch of noise, but just, like, tears flowing out and just, like, a silent cry almost. And they set me down in my wheelchair, and then Amy just kneeled down next to me, and we just kind of were head-to-head and, just sat there and cried. Didn't know what else to do. Just sat there and cried. Just felt like a failure. I, for whatever reason, I felt like since I didn't cross the finish line, it wasn't inspiring. It wasn't. It wasn't gonna help anybody else in any way. It wasn't gonna further our mission in any other way. You know, like I was. I needed to cross that finish line to to make it complete. You know, to make it like what the goal really was
4: I mean two minutes come on I mean it just seems like there there should be some form of tolerance for you know what mother nature threw at us
2: it almost felt like he wasn't given the full chance I mean he was given a chance that everybody else got but like man if he could have gotten on the bike i just think he really could have done it on the bike i mean it's almost like looking at like well what if the accident didn't happen you know what do you think he would have done with his life well it's there's no point in looking at it because that's not what happened
6: if they had been like you know you missed the cutoff but like you only missed it by two minutes we're gonna bend the rules and let you continue on the bike. Maybe you can make up the time on the bike. Would you have done it? Would you have wanted that?
3: No, no.
6: That—that's the one thing that really attracted me to the
3: Ironman as a person with a disability is. Yeah, though they accessibility stuff, they make accommodations, but the rules are rules. I I wanted to I wanted to do an Ironman for what an Ironman was, and I didn't want any special treatment beyond the accessibility
6: issues. Do you regret not being? the first quad to complete an Ironman? Like, is there a piece of you that, I mean, you really, it sounded like that was a big motivation for you starting this whole thing. Like, do you miss that title
3: in a way? I did at first. At at first, not being the first quad to do it. I mean, at the end of the day, it was the first quad to attempt it. And that's something, right? You know, nobody had even gotten to a start line yet.
6: There's a saying that the hard part of an Iron Man is getting to the start line, that the actual race is just the payoff, and I think that's doubly true for Joe. Even if he hadn't finished, he had learned exactly what his body was capable of. He'd figured out when he could trust it, when he couldn't, its strengths and weaknesses. He'd gotten what he'd come for, or at least most of it. A few weeks later, a South African C6 quad named Peter Dupreeze did become the first to complete an Ironman.
5: South African Peter Dupreeze has been on a remarkable journey.
3: After being and I stayed up the entire night following his progress online, and and it was nerve wracking. Like, because if this guy doesn't do it, you know, I have a second chance at becoming the first.
6: Were you rooting against him?
3: No, no, I wasn't rooting against him. I wanted him to do it. I, I wanted him to to finish. I mean. I wouldn't have minded the opportunity, had he not finished, to give it another go, but I wanted, you know, I, want, I was sending him positive energy for sure.
6: It's good swim. one hour thirty-nine, plenty of the able-bodied athletes in the age group would be very happy with that. Peter Dupreeze had been working up to the Ironman for ten years. Joe had trained for eight months, so it actually felt right that Dupreeze had been the first. And Joe, even without his place in history, or at least not the one he wanted, Joe moved on. He was done with triathlons.
3: I don't have any time for anything else. And there's a lot of other things I want to do.
6: And at least in some sense, this is the point at which Joe completed his recovery. Because with the Iron Man behind him, Joe realized that he was still the same person that had launched off Mount Jumbo. This whole story is about the struggle Joe's had trying to overcome the fact that when he gets excited, he can't hardly control himself. And despite the accident, the injuries, the coma, relearning his whole life, he was still excited about flying.
3: So instead of putting all my energy into another Iron Man, I'm going to put that same level of energy into getting back into flying.
6: How did he tell you that he was going to start flying again?
5: He did he- he uh he called me one night and we talked for a long time and then he brought up this this flying thing and uh he said now this time mom you know i'm with a bunch of professionals i'm gonna 100 percent listen to everything they say i'm not gonna try and do anything that i would want to do i mean he should have been a bird (laughs) he loves to fly that much
6: when he decided to start paragliding again Joe connected with Project Airtime, a nonprofit that exists to improve people's quality of life by getting them up in the air. They'll take anyone flying. Sick, injured, elderly, recently paralyzed in a paragliding accident. Anyone. But, like, after he's all, like crashed and become paralyzed, it's a different question now, right?
5: It's a totally different question, and sometimes I, I question my own self-thinking that way. If he falls and breaks his neck again now, it's going to be a whole different deal.
6: He started out flying tandem with Chris Santa Croce, the founder of Project Airtime. But the idea was always to get back to going up solo. It only took them a couple of days to figure out how to do it. Joe also said that his original goal, before the accident, had been to take up base jumping, which is even more dangerous than paragliding. And they said, let's see if we can't figure that out. Does it does it ever feel uh personal?
5: I've gone through phases where, you know, I would just think, you know, he's just being so selfish about so many of these things. And but I always go back to the the, the whole feeling of this is who he is. No different than if, you know, a child knew that they were going to be a doctor from, the, from five. They just knew that's what they were going to do. I don't know why he has all those feelings of thrill-seeking and why it's that important. I don't understand it, but I know that is who this person turned out to be. I don't have the right to try and break him down and and make him be where it's more comfortable for me
6: that's where things stood when joe and i finished our interviews for this piece then the next day he drove to utah because the weather looked good for paragliding when he got there he sent me a text there's talk of potential base jump on monday he wrote i'm pretty stoked and then a few days later, he sent me a video. Joe's on a bridge, sitting on a platform, looking out over an empty canyon. Just a thin river weaving along the bottom, way down below. A guy named Miles Dasher is filming. You hear him ask Joe a question. And then Joe talks through his whole story.
3: Dude, I don't know. This is heavy. This is heavy. This is. This is. Over 10 years of dreaming about this and having it crushed by a speed flying accident, like totally smashed, over, had to give up in the hospital, and to be living it right now. I don't even know. There's no words.
6: Howdy, man. He said hey, to me once that the crash taught him up. that he can fail. Okay, we're ready. Woo! The Iron Man taught him that he can fail even when he's well prepared.
0: Good luck, yeah.
6: But yeah. neither yeah. failure, he says, should make him earthbound.
0: Yeah, okay, 10 seconds.
6: I think it's safe to say that Joe was reckless. Yeah, Joe. Job, boy, what is he now?
3: Three, two, one. Awesome.
0: This episode was produced by Peter Frickwright with music and sound design by Robbie Carver. For more on Joe Stone, check out the Joe Stone Foundation. There's also a documentary about him. It's called It's Raining, So What? You can find it at itsrainingsowhat.com. This episode of the Outside Podcast was brought to you by Sonos, maker of speakers for all around your home and beyond, including The Move and the All-New Rome. The latest portable addition to the Sonos system is smart, lightweight, waterproof, and ready for any adventure. So start yours now at Sonos.com. We'll be back with an all-new episode in just a few days. The second installment of our Wildfile series comes next week.